Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. And joining me once again, my very first repeat guest on this show, Mr. Kalen Pope. What's up, buddy? What's up, man? Excited to be back. Dude, glad I could get you back on, man. When I reached out again, I was like, he's going to be busy hunting, man. He ain't going to be able to come back on the show. And you were like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, sweet. Yeah. Well, that's my thing is I'm trying to get busy hunting and it's like, it's coming, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I, I feel like a, like a racehorse trapped in the stall. You yes. know what I mean? Like I'm ready to go. And, you know, something you said off air as we were talking really resonated because I'm like, I don't have a target. I haven't done the, the work locally to, you know, on my lease or on the local public to really feel like I've got a good early season shot, you know? So I feel like that early season time, you know, honestly, it would be just practicing my climbing and, it, you know, practicing with my gear and practicing with a setup. It wouldn't necessarily be a good, targeted, clean kind of hunt like yeah. I'm looking for. And so, like, even, like, expanding on that, like, that's how I usually think. I'm like, look, dude, if I don't have a deer chase, I'm not going in. But it's like when I went in two Sundays ago, like, I just knew, like, the way that everything laid out, cold front was hitting, north wind, I was like, the least, the worst that can happen is I go in, I see a couple small deer, but there's the potential there that a big deer gets on his feet. And then I look up and I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you had wow. a, you had a pretty good hunt, man. Oh dude, it was, it was really ridiculous in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So odds of you making a return visit, encountering this deer, getting him on the ground. What's your shot? As of right now, I really don't know. And the reason being is, and we were talking about this, like I pulled the camera. uh, I went in there a couple of times just kind of checking things out, watching how the wind played, watching how the thermals played. And like on that tip, like I have gotten extremely efficient. Like I, on that hunt, I had four different bucks come within five yards. Uh, Everything fell exactly right. No deer ever busted me. Uh, and I've done that like four times, kind of in that same little general area. But the thing that worries me is that I haven't, I thought I had that buck on camera. It ended up being a younger buck. I kind of jumped the gun on it. And so that deer, I know that he's there. I think he's favoring the other property. Gotcha. I, be, I believe when this next cold dip hits, I'm going to get him on camera. And it's one of those things, too, like, you know, youth rifles this weekend. There's a good chance if he's favoring that other side, they're probably going to get shot this weekend anyway. Right, right. So are you going to wait for your cameras then to kind of fill in the clues or the pieces a little bit, or are you going to take a couple swings at him? So it, it's it's one of those things, like, so what I did for the last two weekends was I micro-adjusted in that area. Like, we're talking about, like, 300 yards, two different ways. And really just to see if I could – I needed to look at – because he kind of popped up. Where he where I looked up and saw him at was really odd because hmm. it, there was a clear cut on one side, and I should have seen him. If he walked out of the clear cut, I should have seen him come in the whole way. I didn't. He was just there. Well, where he was at was like a gully into in between two drainages on a ridge, and I didn't see him walk down either one of them, but the middle of it's super steep. So I was like, did he just come down the middle of it, or did he walk down this holler from further in, thicker, you know, super thick and just slide, and I never caught him? So there was a lot of questions I had, like, as far as, like, how deer move through that area, uh, just in general. So the first thing I did was, like, adjust up onto the property line and watch him come down. And I believe that's what he did. Okay. hundred percent. I saw that next hunt in, I saw four bucks. I watched two little bucks fight and rub trees at like 20 yards, which was just super cool. 
And then I had like six does and I was hanging like seven foot high. I got like some cool footage of it. Uh, again, nothing ever busted me. Clean entry, clean exit. But it's a lot of pine undergrowth going all the way up a hill. Like it's, if he was laying there, he may not be able to see you because he's laying in undergrowth, but nothing's going to be able to get to him. And I, I just feel like that that's probably what he's doing. And I think, uh, so the day I saw him, there was super high winds. Like we're talking about, it said 28 mile an hour gust, but it was like a constant 20 the whole time. I think that's why he dropped in. Gotcha. He getting down out of that wind. Correct. So I've been, I've been waiting kind of like cold front, north wind, high wind. He's going to do it again. I know he is. He said he was too comfortable, but it's also like I have three other cameras soaking, one of them being in a swamp and, uh, I don't want to jump the gun and get this deer in front of me and pull the trigger and go check a camera and there'd be like a 150 inch deer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh, yeah. I'm totally new yeah. to this property. The deer really just started settling into it. So it's like, do I want to go in and kill a deer on purpose? Because that's how I like to kill them and, and be, I'm going to have to live with that decision. So should I just wait a few weeks and know he's not going to go anywhere? And I think that's where I'm at. Right. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, man. What, uh, what was it that clued you in on this specific location in the first place? Like what, what made you head in there? Cause it, it sounds like, man, it might be one of those spots that like you can really get dialed in and, and have some good hunting, not just this year, but future years as well. Infinitely. So it's, it's basically it's a giant holler. And so I just dropped in like where there was like three or four drainages dumping in the most drainages dumping in at one spot. And like when I was in there, I was actually off by maybe like 60 yards for actual movement. I was all in it, but I really needed to be where he was. Like all of the movement happened like right where he was besides what came from behind me that day. But the general location, uh, it's, it was just kind of swampy. Like the rest of the holler is really just like any other holler. But there was just – when you got down there, it's really wet. There's a lot of greenery. Uh, the cut was really visible on one side, letting a lot of light in. Uh, so at last light, a deer could come down there, and, you know, he could catch that peak window of how, when he can see the best. Like there's just a lot lining up. There's bedding on both sides. Uh, and the first time I went in there, there was a super heater deer trail. Like you could just see all the tracks through all the mud in there. Mm -hmm. And I was like, there's just deer in here. Like, so even if this isn't a kill spot, it's a camera spot. Right. Right. Dude, you've got my, my wheels are turning. Like, as you're talking about this spot, I'm thinking about one that it's on the public near me here. And there's a Creek that runs through it and another Creek that comes in and joins it. So there's kind of like three Creek bottoms that come together. And on one side, it's all, I guess, the, the, the creek that branches off has got a strip of timber that goes with it. And on both sides of that, it's clear cut. And then on the other side of, like, the main creek that runs through up on that hill, it was all burned last year. Right. And, I'm, dude, bedding opportunities all around. The bottom's full of white oaks. I should have hung a camera in there, but I didn't. Um, but, dude, it's got, it's got that kind of vibe going on so i'm thinking I'm like man i need to, i need to get back in there and that's that's one thing that i think i'm really pushing so so it was it was put on to me uh like the biggest deer that i've killed i used a lot of cell cameras right so it was kind of laid in my lap by several people like this is how you killed this deer you did it because of cell cameras. When in all actuality, I told my best friend where I was going to kill that deer before the first camera was hung. Wow. I called it. And several people know that, like have have proof of that. Well, this property's funny. There's no service on it. Mm. So I'm having to use regular cameras. So I'm really adamant about kind of always having a camera on me and just getting them up. Like I, I don't want to wait. Like I want to get a camera in there, get it up. And it's kind of a pain, you know, like having to go back in and check. But you know, you'd probably be burning a hunt somewhere else anyway. Uh, and especially like in this early season with little data anyway, and especially with these cold fronts hitting the way that they are, it's really not a bad thing because the times you are in there, it's very likely if you know what you're looking for, you're probably going to see a big deer. Right, right. When when it comes to these kind of, I guess, you know, reverting back, I guess you could say, with these with these SD cameras, 
what's that look like for you for your process? Because as you're trying to chase down a specific deer, you know, cell cameras kind of give you an advantage. But, you know, one of the ways that I really use those SD card cameras, the old school ones, is historical data. But historical last year's data doesn't do you any good on this buck right now, right? So how are you, how are you playing that? All right, so essentially, and, and this is where, like, there's a big miss with, like, the cell cams, like, especially in the south. Uh, every big deer that I've ever, like, used a cell camera on or been around, like, by majority, he's really the only deer in that area. So it's not like you're surveilling him. Like, a lot of people, and, like, even, like, people who've never hunted Alabama, dude, like, I've never seen the same buck twice in a year. Like it's, it's not like one of those things where I can just go in and hunt and hunt and hunt and hunt and eventually key, key in on them. Some of these deer, like that's the only foot up you really have. Like you, you're hunting while you're not hunting and and that's what you're doing. So going to this property, there's a lot of deer. Like it's just totally different. Like the public that I've always hunted, it's, it's not really a good population of deer to begin with. I may hunt three hunts and see two does. Whereas this property, like, as you've seen, like, follow, like, my Instagram story, like, every time I sit, dude, I'm seeing, like, 10 deer. Yeah. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. So, so it's a lot less pressing. Like, I don't really feel like I have to even have a cell camera because if I, as long as I have a camera in the right spot, eventually the right deer is going to pass in front of it. As long as I know he's there, I can go in and kill him. I just need to know he's there. It's one of those things in my mind, if I knew there was a booner seven miles deep in the woods, I would find a way to be there. Right. I just need I just need the confirmation. It's hard for me to commit without confirmation. So uh, as so what I'm really doing is kind of like getting a camera up, letting it soak for two weeks, especially right now. Like everything's rolling right now. These deer are really kind of settling in. So these cameras that I've had, I've wanted to go in and look, but I've been waiting. But when I saw that big deer on his feet the other day, I was like, okay, if I let these cameras sit for two weeks. I can really have a jump rolling right into pre-rut to really get in on a big deer. I yeah. don't really need cameras after that. If he's there, he's going to be there. I can I can move around and micro-adjust, and I'll pin him. Right, right. How concerned are you with uh, – because I know you're making really aggressive moves on these hunts, right? So, like, how concerned are you when it comes to ground scent and that kind of stuff and hanging cameras? Are you, are you not too worried about it? The way that I look at it is – so, all right, take like a highly pressured deer. Like, they're going to know you're there whether you're there or not because other people are going to be there. They're eventually still going to make the mistake. So, inducing a little pressure on these deer, uh, especially with so many deer being around, I really, I really don't care about it at all, to be honest. I mean, if you're on top of him, like if you figure out where he's bedding and you know how to play your scent, yeah, I mean, even if he smelt you prior, uh, I don't think he's going to key in as hard as like a big public land deer would. I right. think that a big public land deer would potentially lock up. And like a lot of people, they think that he's just going to, like if you bumped him out of his bed or you got too close to him, he's going to leave. He's not going to do that. But there's a potential like he just stops leaving his bed before daylight. Right. Well, in that case, like if you know that that's what's going on, you just don't hunt. And you let him, you let the weather get right, you let everything get right, and that's when you you make the kill move. So it's essentially the same thing. Right, right. Now that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. So, uh, man, when we started talking about this deer and where you were, it played into a topic that we addressed on the previous episode that I had you on, which um, got a lot of good feedback from that episode. So I knew, you know, had to get you back on anyway. But, um, you were not anywhere near acorns. You, these, these, these deer were not under a feed tree. And no. so I wanted to pose the question because it seems like, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, man. It, it feels like if you're hunting September, October, early November in the South, mid November in the South, um, if you're not hunting on feed trees, what are you even doing with your life? Why, why even bother going hunting? If you're not going to go find the feed tree that is the ice cream tree, the one that all the deer walk past every other white oak in the forest to get to this one. And when you get underneath it, it's like a cattle lot because of all the droppings on the ground and blah, 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 blah. And that's the secret to killing big deer. Uh, are, are feed trees overrated? 
100%, and I'll pose a question that should prove it in itself. Name one big southern name that has killed a big feed tree deer. This, so we're four weeks into the season. Where are they at? You know, that's a that's a pretty good question. Where are they at? If uh, you're talking about them so much, where's the proof? Yeah. No, I think, man, I, th- I think that's a good, that's a really good question. And I I don't want to frame the conversation in the, as if we're saying bucks don't eat acorns. Because that, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying they don't eat persimmons. We're not Correct. saying bucks don't eat at honey locust trees. What we're saying is that it may be a little bit off to think about the tree as the primary factor, maybe, in the success yes. on the big bucks that are killed there. Um, because one thing that I think we both noticed last time, the folks who do really well on the feed trees, it's your volume kill crew, right? Like it's your guys that going, they kill a lot of deer. Absolutely, they kill a lot of deer. And out of that whole bunch of deer, a couple of them are pretty big, you know? But, man, they killed a 100 of them on these on these feed trees and so it seems like while yeah you can eventually have some good luck it seems like the majority of deer you're going to have luck on at these feed trees is going to be does and small bucks correct you know so so a really good example of this is one of my best friends is on a very high caliber public land deer and uh he's been bouncing questions off of me and i this deer's living you know in a swamp and i told him I was like, look, man, it really doesn't matter what kind of food's available. And even like on a year like this year, when there's too much food available, it just plays to the deer's the deer's needs. Like he can just feed all night. And he really doesn't care. But when you're playing with a deer of this caliber, I said, here's the thing, man, that, that swamp is, you know, 10 acres. I said, he's never, before his testosterone makes him, he's not going to leave that swamp in daylight. Right. And, and camera pictures, Every day after daylight, there he is, mm. right on the edge of that swamp. But you can't get in it, and thermals are pushing right into it. He he has. There's a reason he's there. Right. You know what I mean? So, right. uh, it all it would all depend on like people's opinions of high caliber deer, and not saying that there will not be a high caliber deer killed on a feed tree. It it a hundred percent can happen, but there's a lot of I think there's a lot more important details that people, if they do kill a deer at a feed tree, that they may overlook that would lead them to long-term success versus hyper-focusing on, well, it was a feed tree. Right, exactly. And, you can, yeah, there will be big bucks killed on feed trees because big bucks love acorns. It's, it, so do all deer, right? All kinds of things love them. But the reality is it's not the, it's not the flavor of the acorn. Or it's not the, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, oh, this tree's got the magic sauce. Or this tree was in good soil, and this one over here is in bad soil. And so these, you know, this is the one that really draws them in or whatever. There are a lot of other factors that are that are feeding into that, playing into that. And, man, I'll be honest with you. I think a lot of times when we get into these places with these trees that drop a lot, you know, these really high-producing master trees, a lot of times they're in pretty wide-open spaces. Like, they're, they're in wide-open timber for 100 yards around them, yeah. 75 yards around them. Yeah. And it's like, man, those deer are staging in the thick stuff. Yep. You know what I mean? So talk to me about it. You know, if, if a guy's been listening to all the feed tree stuff and he's like, you know, man, I've had, I put my cameras out and I got big bucks coming into this feed tree at night. Why shouldn't I keep hunting it? What, what maybe adjustments should they make or what should they be looking for to, to tweak that strategy a little bit? Well, this goes back to, uh, and, You've heard a lot of people say this, and I say this, is it comes down to, in your mind, you have a spot that a lot of people are like, this is where I want to kill that deer. Right. It's not that the information's leading them to, this is where this deer needs to die. You're trying to kill the deer where you want to kill him, mm. not where the deer is killable. And so a lot of people look back. like It's just like, all right, if I'm getting pictures of a big, big buck, at a feed tree at night, the first thing I'm looking at, what direction is he coming from and what is the thickest thing in that direction? I want to know where he's coming from. Where can I cut him off at? For one, you already have a problem. You're getting pictures at night. Uh, that's that's rule number one. It's cool you got pictures of a deer, but the number one problem is a lot of people hunt pictures of deer and not deer. 
So it's just how you have to arrange your mind in understanding big buck movement period. Like he's probably going to stand up close to the last lot. He may move a hundred yards within daylight. After that, you're out of the ball game. Right. And then that varies some, you know, it, you may catch him on an alternate trail one day, just like I, I did that deer. I don't believe that that is his true path of movement every single day. And the camera kind of proves that. Uh, but you, that's when you have to be able to start looking at things outside of the box and objectively because the wrong person or an inexperienced person will spend their whole season sitting right there right, over and over again. And they'll think eventually, and some deer, eventually they will get killed right there. Yeah. But when you start talking about efficiency and how quickly you could have killed that deer comparably, it's a totally different story. Yeah. Yep. No, man, and that's a, that's a really good point too. I mean, I think of one guy who, uh, you know, I've reached out to him a couple of times. He's like, look, I'm out of the podcast game. I'm not, I'm not doing any more of them. And, uh, gosh, I, his name slips my mind right now. It, it shouldn't, the dude kills, has killed several hundred deer on, uh, a lot of them on feed trees in Louisiana. My goodness. Are you talking about a uh, dude that killed the mega, the Arkansas mega? No, no, that's Jonathan Moreland. Now he, that guy, he and he's he's not hunting a lot of oak trees. He's hunting a lot of uh, honey locusts, uh, which is interesting to me. And I think pretty specific to his area. But th- if you listen to him, though, there's a lot more going on there with him. And he'll call him an ice cream tree, but he's he's thinking about a lot of other factors than just oh, this tree was dropping some stuff and there was some sign around it, so I sat there. Yeah, nah, dude. Yeah, he, the dude's just slick. He's a good deer hunter. He's a very good deer hunter. Very good dinner. As, in fact, I just talked to him on Instagram. I am going to get him on the show um, pretty soon. This is an older gentleman. I cannot remember his name. Warren Womack. My goodness, I couldn't. I've talked to the guy 10 times now trying to get him on, on one of the podcasts. But So Warren Womack, he's killed a ton of deer on, on feed trees. And if you hear him, his strategy for finding them, uh, man, he'll, he'll talk about, yeah, I'll search half a day, a whole day trying to find the tree that I want to get to and I'll go sit that tree. And if I see a deer on it, I'll shoot it. If not, I'm on to the next one. it's like, yeah, that's a great strategy for killing a lot of deer. If you've got the time, but it doesn't seem to be the most efficient, you know, and, and to his credit, I don't think that was his concern, right? Like you think about the way he hunted and, and, and still hunts this day, man, he's still out there doing the mobile thing at like whatever age he's at. I mean, he's, tons of respect for this guy and and also he's he's one of the ones that you think about though on these feed trees he's just as happy to shoot a spike as he is anything else you know and and good on him like that's what he wants to do that's that's the deer hunting experience that he's after and he's killed some good ones um but i think i I think there are maybe some other strategies that could be a little more uh, a little more efficient for the guy looking to go in and and be more efficient you know Yep, and and that's where, like, the outside factors that I feel like a lot of your actual big buck killers who are well-versed not only in one area but have, have done it in multiple areas, they, they look for specifics. And when a feed tree happens to line up inside of those specifics, yeah, it can be a killer combo. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's also – you start talking about big buck density. There's a lot of factors in there that have to line up. Like he has to be there from, from the, from the beginning. If you just go in and hunt a feed tree, like in the South, the likelihood that a high caliber deer is even close to it's pretty low. Right. And you know, I'll be honest with you. I've hunted, I've hunted oak trees a lot of times in the South, man, growing up good mast years, not good mast years. Most of the time on a regular, decent mast year, you go and you hunt one of these oaks and, you know, depending on what you saw there, you got a doe, doe and a fawn, a couple does come in, maybe a small buck comes in, and that's kind of it, you know? Dude, I would, even in my mind, and I have no proof of this, this would, this would just be deer theory. In my mind, I would be least likely to hunt the oak tree with the most sign, the hot feed right. tree. Right, Because generally, from everything that I've ever seen, a big mature buck, isn't going to be in the mix with a bunch of other deer. Right. He's going to be alone. So I would I would be more keyed on like finding a feed tree with a big track and not a lot of traffic potentially. Right. If if that's the route that I was going to take. Right. And that's one of the reasons 
you know, if I'm if I'm understanding what Jonathan Moreland does correctly, you know, that's one of the reasons he's getting on these honey locust trees as opposed to some of the other trees that he's that you could key in on, right? He's not on the white oaks because, you know, he's got hogs and other things that he's competing with and he's like, Big buck as I'm after, they don't want to be in there with everything else. Right. You know, correct. So that's one of the reasons I want to pick his brain on it a little bit more. But man, you talked about there are other factors there that you know, increase the success rate or the opportunity. What are some of those other factors that you're thinking like, okay, these would really play in on that. Okay. So like this year, like immediately what I'm looking for is like betting into a thermal lock. So like betting with a travel route into a, a thermally appropriate situation for a big buck to scent check before traveling any further. All right. Wait a so, second. I, I need we got to define terms and all kinds of stuff here, man. So hold on. So you said betting into a thermal lock. Yeah. So what I and that's that's just what I would call it. So well, I like that. There, so, that, so there were there are areas and where a deer could always pass through, and it's those areas where like man, every time I'm in there, he's in there in daylight. You know, or every time I'm not there, he's in there in daylight. Anytime I'm there, he's not. Well, it's a it's a thermally advantageous situation for the deer, and it always will be. So that's what I call a thermal lock. The deer has the thermal so locked in that area, there's no way you could be in there with him in there. He's going to pin you every single time. Now, does that mean 100 yards further you couldn't cut him off before he's there? Yeah, 100%. But in that specific spot, it's, it's a great camera spot. It's a bad hunting spot. Right. Right, I see what you're saying. So it's it's always going to give him the the most advantage there in that specific spot. Um, I'm, I'm thinking through places where your thermals just seem to always pull and drop to. You know? Correct, yeah. and and that would be like so that plays into like thermals falling, deer moving in the afternoon. That's right. why your big bucks are more likely to move in the afternoon than the morning. In the morning time, your thermals have been falling all night. So they're probably already in bed situated. You know, they know thermals are going to rise. If they're going to get up and do anything during the middle of the day, they're going up top. Right. And they're going to do it around 9 o'clock. Uh, now, in the afternoon, they're going to want water. It's one of the first things they're going to try to look for. And two, they're going to try to fumble into a spot that's going to give them a good read on the section of property ahead of them. So potentially like you have a property slanted to like one corner that is a creek crossing. Like if you don't get in there some super back around way, uh, he's going to pick you. He's going to know. Now it's just like hunting creek bottoms and doing it properly that a lot of people miss real big on. And you'll see some people, especially like rifle hunters, they'll just sit three quarters up the ridge and they catch them coming down the other side. Well, when you have a bow in hand, like, and I've explained this to several people, all right, thermals are really heavy on, you really need to know where the deer's coming from, or you're just shocked from the beginning. But if you know where he's coming from, you would never want the creek to be in between you and him. Because as soon as he steps in the creek, you're done. The thermals are pulling to the creek. You have to cut him before he ever gets the thermal advantage, which is the creek. So if you're on his side of the creek, your thermals are dumping into it in a way, and you have a clean shot. Right, right. So I've, I've got a little spot. i got to throw this out there as a, as a not a devil's advocate, but like a, a caveat on that front. So I've got this ditch crossing. It's one of my favorite spots to hunt during the rut, right? And this ditch crossing, so I come off of this main trail, and it's got a little dip, and then there's a berm, almost like a dike, before you get to the ditch, and then there's the ditch crossing. So the thermals, yeah, they're pulling, but as they pull down where I sit, they're pulling down into this lower spot where my tree is and back out as opposed to making it over into the ditch because there's this little berm up on that Uh ditch. So I've got a little bit of an advantage there. So you can find that. But for the most part, if you're hunting a creek, you're, it's pulling down to, you know, directly to the creek or directly to the ditch. Catch what I'm so, saying? Yes. And so there's there's ways around it, too, that people don't talk about. And I've played with this for several years, and I've actually had success with this. If you can get a constant, now the key is constant, any break, but if you can get a constant, like, 10, 11-mile-an-hour winds, it'll push your thermals. Right. 
it'll, it'll overplay small water sources. Now, a river, you're just not going to beat it. Right. So okay. you can get in these areas, and what you have to understand is, again, you have to know where this deer's coming from. Like, you really need to know where he's bedded at so you're not pushing wind into him. Right. Uh, because when you're situating yourself like this, you have to kill an area with your scent. You're gonna, your scent's got to go somewhere. Now, if you have a northwest wind, there's a big difference in sitting right here and killing this area or sitting right here and killing this area, depending on where the deer bedded. That's why those micro offsets can be super killer. So, like when I was in that bottom the other day, when all those bucks came in, I had a southwest wind or a northwest wind. Dude, I casted just just happenstance of what I thought would happen and the way travel would work. No deer ever busted me, and I had deer move every direction around me. N- nothing, nothing ever happened. They were all in the bottom. My thermals were being pushed out. Uh, so there's ways to win, but if you don't understand what's happening, you'll never be able to grasp it. Right, right. What are? Give me some tips, man, on you know how to figure out how thermals are playing in a specific area because. You know, I, I think a lot of guys want to anticipate it and think about what the thermals are going to do before they get to a spot. But I think it's a it's another thing to test that theory and work on that theory and refine that theory and then take that information and apply it to other spots. Does that make sense? Like they, yeah, so they, they I, I actually thought about basics. it and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And there's actually a visual reference to thermals in life. And you know what it is? What's that? Fog. There you go. Yep. Fog fog lifts when the sun comes up. Fog lays on the water when the sun's first rising. Fog does fog is literally showing you what thermals do. So when you walk into a spot, if you think somebody dumped a bucket or, you know, a fifty gallon bucket of fog, what would it do right now? Right. Right. Now, you know, swirling winds and deep bottoms, stuff like that can also be also be problematic. Uh but I think again. Uh, it, it depends on the area and the severity of the sur- the swirling wind, but I think there's ways to win there. Uh, but fog, if you can train your mind to, to think about the mechanical properties of fog, even when you're looking at an area on a map, and just think, well, when that sun comes up, the fog would disappear. You know, before daylight, if I was sitting on this ridgetop, all the fogs go into the bottoms and it's fl- following the creek. It's going to flow the direction that it does. That's it. That's all you got to think about. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good, man. So what are you doing in, in some of these spots, you know, in the morning? Um, I find thermals far easier to play in an afternoon uh, than I do in a morning because when I'm when I'm going in in the afternoon, I'm thinking about rising thermals, and, you know, I've got a pretty good idea of how things are going to go. Then, boom, sun starts going down. My thermals are going to shift. They're going to start pulling down. But by then, I'm already where I want to be, right? I find that a lot harder to reverse engineer in the morning where it's like they're falling when I'm on my way in. And honestly, kind of who knows at what point they're really going to get going. You know, who who knows when they're going to start. It depends on the day. Yeah, it really does depend on the day. So, um, you know, what are, what are you finding? What are you doing in the morning time? Like, do you have mornings that you're like, look, man, thermals just don't work for this. So I'm going to go in at 830, 9 o'clock. Like, what does that look like for you to try to play them in the morning? I think that the biggest mistake that a lot of public land deer hunters is is that they do make is going in in the morning. Period. Okay. I think I think if you want to immediately pressurize an area, let a bunch of public land hunters walk in first thing in the morning and sit on ridge tops, and you're going to let every mm. night, every deer know in one day what just happened. Dang, dude, that I, is. I, I think that that's the largest mistake that a deer hunt you you literally and even if you are going to travel in the morning this is where you have to start getting like super thermal smart like if I was going to go in and in an area in the morning you can start thinking about creeks as thermal breaks like okay I'm pushing I know I'm not to the area that I want to be there's two creeks in between me I need to cross them at the very far end so that my thermals from everything behind me sucks into it and breaks that way. When you come around to get to the area that you are, you need a wind that is continuing to push your scent the way that you came in if the deer is bedded in front of you. Now, you would. it, it also has to work out that the deer would travel that way, cross winds, and that he's going to try to get into a thermal 
thermally advantageous area and you're cutting him off before he makes it. So you have to really, you have to have, know that the deer's there and what he's going to do to be able to define that path. Right. But, uh, so like, all right, let's say, you know, that there's a deer bedded on this ridge or in, and he's going to cross this bottom. The worst thing you could do is walk in on that anywhere close to that holler. You need to walk in to the holler, one holler away, dump all of your scent in it, and then J-hook. So a deer right. J-hooks. A deer J-hooks. So when they come into a bed, they're going to sweep. And so how do you kill a deer that J-hooks? Well, if you know where he's going to sweep, you sit 20 yards outside of a swoop. Your scent is blowing directly beside him. He never crosses it, and you get a shot. Throwing your scent can be the same way. If you know where he's bedding and you know that you can – the wind is in your favor if you can J-hook to it. You throw your scent all around him and come up right behind where he's going to exit his bed. And if you were on the other side, you're dead. He's he's pegged you every single time. But if you throw that scent the whole way and J-hook into where you need to be, and he never gets that pick on you, it's a done deal. Right. Man, that's so, like... How many hunts are are over before they get going? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, dude. That's like, I even as much like I consider and not to toot my own horn, but I have a very mechanically situated mind. And there are so many times where I'm like, I'm not especially if I don't know what the deer's doing, I'm not going in in the morning. Right. I'm right. not I'm just not gonna hunt in the morning. Now you start getting around rut where deer can kind of come from anywhere. There's nothing you can control there. You got to wing it, man. Like, right. but when you're playing with one deer, you really need to start thinking about. And and I just think that even leading into how many times have you heard somebody be like, "Well, I was running five minutes late. I hop in the stand. That deer was right in front of me. I killed him. I killed him." Well, that deer had crossed some thermally advantageous point before you were there, and he was like, "I'm good to go." Mm-hmm. And then he rolls up. And you were running late, and boom, you pegged him. Right, right. You pegged him. Yes. It's not because of luck or the way that anything worked out. He crossed a well-known pick of his, and he picked nothing. You weren't there, but mm. you got there later. Man, so you thought you were late, but you were right on time. Right, but <laughs> people people who don't look at things, like every time you kill a dude, you should go back and look at what happened as well as you can. Even if it was just a random rut deer, the situation, you need to look at the wind, everything, and that'll help you grow forward because you will never kill a big, mature buck by mistake. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if it's a rut. He has been there before. He is never taking a footstep that he has not traveled before. There's a reason. Right, right. Man, so let's dive into a couple things there. Uh, I, help us think Help us think through these thermal blocks a little bit more. Um, I'll be honest with you, man, the first – when I get out on a piece of public ground and, you know, especially in hill country, like where I'm at here in, in Georgia, uh, I'm not thinking first thing about like, man, let me dive off to the bottom of this thing, get right along this Creek, walk this Creek all the way down, then walk straight up and over this Ridge, hop that Creek and J hook around to get, to, you know what I'm saying? Like, right, like right. I'm thinking I'm going to get on this Ridge. He's going to be bedded near the point or something. And I'm going to walk straight down this Ridge to get, you know, between where he is right now and his bed, when in reality, that's like the absolute wrong move. So, so a lot of what will help people, and I tell a lot of guys this, like the first thing you need to do is you need to start targeting a deer. Don't go find, if you've never targeted a deer, don't go find a six-year-old, 150-inch, highly pressured public deer. He's about to blow your brain out of the back of your head. Mm. Is exactly what he's going to do. I did that, but it... I have a quick learning curve. So for if that's what you want to do, you want to play that game, like <laughs> hop on it. But really, ideally, if you can find you a three-and-a-half, four-year-old deer, a good buck, because how many times have you heard somebody say, yeah, four years old, a deer becomes a ghost? Right. Well, why is that? And the reason that I believe is I think that young deer, and you can watch them. They'll bed down in front of you. They'll switch and switch and switch for wind. I don't think a deer, once he hits maturity, does that. I think he's traveled enough, and he starts picking scent up in these places, and he starts keying in on, well, I can kind of ignore the wind here 
and travel crosswind because I'm going to get a full-on scent burst right there. I think that at that point of, like, the very beginning of maturity for a deer, he, most deer, they start focusing on thermals more than they do wind. Mm. And I think that's what makes them a ghost. Right. Wind will get you killed. I mean, if you think about it, a swirling wind, why would a deer ever travel in it? Right. Right. Especially a strong wind. Like, he he just can't pick up on it. So what would make him want to travel? He's got to have some kind of security. Yeah, man, that's good. That's really, really good. All right, so then let's bring it all back, I guess, around to, um, you know, some of these preferred, if we even want to call them feed trees, right? Right. How are you noticing, or is it even, impacting how these deer bed? Or is their bedding just solely based on other things? Because, you know, if I watch some of the hunting beast stuff or if I listen to some of the guys who, who are in that, that school of thought, um, a lot of these beds are based on early season, not based on necessarily, but they're right there with, you know, early season oaks. Those, you know, you want to be on that first drop in oak or whatever, like Dan Infault says a whole bunch. Are these feed trees, food sources, any of that stuff, are they influencing the way that mature buck is bedding or is he betting based on security and just figuring out the food after that, in your opinion? Oh, I 100% think he's betting on it. Now, now, let's be very specific here. I think that this depends on area, pressure, and just the total sight picture. So, like, take a deer in a neighborhood. A big mature buck that thinks he's totally safe and never had bumped into a problem in his life, he may bed right next to the best corn feeder in the neighborhood. Right. You know what I mean? And not yeah. think a thing of it. But when you start talking about pressured deer, I think that they prioritize survival over everything. I mean, he's got all night where he's not worried about anything killing him. He can go find food. Right. You know, now when you start talking about being in cornfields where the food is security covered, that's a whole different, you know, they'll bed in it. They'll 100% bet in it. But as soon as, like, that kind of plays over, plus testosterone's rising, velvet comes off, they're immediately, they're going into survival mode. Right, right. So the not necessarily food-based. And, so then what makes, what makes, what would take to get, what would it take to get you to say, you know what, I found a feed tree. I found a tree with some hot sign around it. I want to hunt it. What what's gonna what's it gonna take to get you on that? Uh, so like if I went into an area, like I had cameras up, I knew I had a really high caliber deer on camera. So I I pop up like maybe do some micro hunt and get down and scout, and like I'm running the bedding like looking around, and boom, there's there's a tree. I know he's bedding super super close. There's a tree. I'm gonna try it. If he's bedding right there in the afternoon and I can I can shift the wind in on it, there's a good chance then that that's the first thing he comes out of bed and hits. Now, whether he does it in daylight can depend on the day, yada, 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 how he feels, whether you alerted him going in. You know, there's right. a lot of factors there. But uh, if it lined up like that way, I knew for a fact that there was food, it was the best food stores, and the deer was there, and it was within the travel range I felt that that deer is going to reach before nightfall, yeah, then I'll, I'll give it a shot. Right, but this, so if I'm hearing you right, this all came back to, to confirmed bedding. Correct. Like, it's it's not like, hey, there's here's a good oak tree and there's some thick stuff 100 yards over there, I bet I bet one comes through. Yeah, and so people, a lot of people, since this would be nationwide, have to understand, like, my point of view where I may walk in 10 bedding areas, let's say, in a four-week period. And I know for a fact that they lay out that there should be a big deer in there. Well, in my part of the country, nine out of the 10 are not. Even though it lays out and there should be, there just may not be a high-caliber deer there because there's just not many of them. Right. Right. So it, it, it's one of those things where, like, I have to hyper-focus on the fact of, like, I need confirmation that he's there because more than likely he's not. Now, in some parts of the country, it's more that, man, if I can find the right situation, there will be a high-caliber deer there. That's a totally different I, – I can't even speak in that realm because I don't live there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man, that is that is a totally different – I mean, and, and that goes not only because we have uh, so few mature deer compared to some other states – 
but we also have so many more uh, what I would consider almost prime betting opportunities. For, yeah, for and just and just majorly less competitive. I mean, like even when you get to talking like our doe population is insane, uh, our deer population in general. So it's like once you take the competitiveness factor out too, it makes deer act totally different. Right, right, ma'am. Yeah, that's golly, it's totally wild, totally wild. All right, folks, we well, heard it here first. Uh, feed trees probably overrated. Betting probably not overrated. Um, I am curious about, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, last year I hung a bunch of cameras on feed trees and I had one camera that got a good buck one time when this tree was dropping. And then I had another camera, um, that basically there was a good buck. And when I say good buck, I mean a three-year-old deer on it. Almost every evening from the time this thing started dropping until it, till the camera died basically. And it was right along the edge of a clear cut. And what it also had is it had a couple of small rubs in the vicinity. So for, for me that those have been kind of the things that, that have really keyed me in on that, you know, one betting opportunities in close proximity. And two is that, you know, there's confirmed buck sign there. There's a couple rubs. So, like, there's definitely a buck here. But for the most part, I was getting does or nothing, you know. And this is a relatively high deer concentration area. Um, yeah, I'd say I'd say relatively high. But, um, but yeah, for the most part, though, man, it just wasn't wasn't consistent enough. Uh, dude, you've got you got a little bit of hunting coming up here soon. And you're yes. going to be doing a little bit of traveling. Is that right? Yeah, hopefully. I'm trying to line it up, yeah. and I'm looking at funds, and I spent a little too much money this summer. Yeah. But uh, I think it's going to work out. Um, I'm pushing for it. So yeah. Awesome. Well, so when, when it comes to, you know, trying to track down one out of state, man, I mean, obviously, you know, I think if you can get on bucks consistently in the south – I think you can probably kill them anywhere. Um, right. But what does that look like for you as you're prepping to head out of state? And so I'm not a well-versed, uh, I'm not well-versed in the Midwest. So this is all information that I will, I've tried and will be trying from uh, people that I've talked to that are well-versed, but essentially I'm just going to move a lot. I'm going to cover a lot of ground see where he's laying his sign at and that's where I'm going to hunt. And it's so odd because like going back to the big deer, my buddy has on camera and I've talked about this. I've told so many people this and it's like, it just, they cannot believe it. Uh, where I live, you will not really find any sign near a big deer. I don't, I can't tell you why. I don't know if it's, I, I, I have my theories on it, but there's nothing that I can say that is just a confirmed. All I can tell you is it has continuously proved itself true where there are very large mature deer. There's no sign. And that's the first thing he told me, like when he kind of keyed in, he said, dude, he said, there's no sign of this deer anywhere. Mm. And I was like, imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think too, you know, a lot of these deer that I've come across have been highly pressured. Mm-hmm. So I think it's more of like, a, he knows that leaving a sign keeps people in. Right. Right. Or it's those, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about because, you know, I've, I've noticed that, that same thing here in the South. Um, it's the deer that do leave sign that get shot at two, that get shot at three. And yep. they don't ever make it to four five, six years old because yep. they left a little bit too much laying around. Well, uh, and two, it's been said before, like if you think about it, the biggest deer that you have on your property may not be the dominant deer. Right. You might have a rowdy four-year-old that really well likes to scrap and he really likes to leave that sign. And that big deer, he may just be trying to live his life and stay out the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. He's like, dude, no, I don't got the time. Yeah, it's just such a that, – that just created such a hilarious mental picture for me. It's just – just this old guy sitting in the back. He's like, dude, I'm just trying to have a good time. Like, like slow down. This is a neighborhood. 
get off my lawn. Oh man, that's good. But that's that's really how they think, and a lot of people like they're they're not aggressive. They are ornery. You know, yep. if, if somebody encroaches on them, they're going to protect, you know, what they have, but they're not out looking for it. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. But it seems like, man, in the Midwest, that whole, uh, hey, there's a deer here, but he doesn't leave sign, that doesn't seem to be a thing. No, and I, I so I almost wonder if it's like the mixed breeding I almost wonder if it's like the the temperatures. I, I sometimes wonder if they leave a lot of it inside of cutovers and pine thickets that you'll never go in because they're just too thick. Uh, there's a lot that I wonder that's hard to confirm because like you literally just can't get in there. Right. Right. You, you, I mean, you could if you really wanted to, but you're going to look like you got stabbed by a thousand midgets. Yeah. Like when you come back, yeah, you know what I mean. You want to spend a week in the hospital. You know, you, right. could, you could maybe go try that. But uh, I, I think a lot of it too, man, and I don't know, this this may not be accurate, but it, it just seems like our our mature buck to doe ratio is so far off in so many areas that there's just not the competition. Like there's- No, and, and so it's really funny, like going back to Aquaman, uh, like when the rut first kicked up, it was like does started showing up in his area. Mm. They were coming to him. Yeah. Now, eventually, when those does were bred out, you know, anything in the the surrounding area, he obviously moved. But it, it's one of those things, like where it's like, you know, do they prefer that caliber of deer, like the monarch, you know, the older deer, and they're just going to push their way into his area and try to do what they can to make that happen, compared to getting chased by a deer. Yeah, man, that's really interesting. So as I think through this area where I was hunting last year, um, the oldest buck in this area was the smallest buck in this area. Right. And, and he's the one that I ended up killing. He's sitting here on the wall behind me. Um, big deer, beautiful deer. But there was a, there was a, a three-year-old in there that was probably pushing 160 plus inches. Uh, there was another deer in there that I think was younger than this one. And he's probably pushing 150. And man, those deer were running around all over the place. Like they were losing their dadgum minds. But you got this guy, both times I saw him, he was acting like an early season deer that just stood up out of his bed. And so there's a flip to that too that I've noticed is like, it's almost like at that, like they breached that six-year-old, they in their seventh year, and you'll hear about it a lot, like nobody knew about this deer. All of a sudden he's everywhere for one year. Like, it's almost like they have a, a year where it's like they get real brazen, you know, and sometimes they get killed that year, but it's like they just lose all sense. They just start going crazy, and the right. years after, they revert back to like, you know, I, I wonder if it's like their last hurrah, and they're like, I'm going to do it, you know what I mean, <laughs> or what, before they chill out. Yeah. But yeah. There, for some deer, there's a year there where they just wig out. Yeah. It, it's a midlife crisis. Yeah, it is. It's a hundred percent is. Now it doesn't happen with all of them, right. but there's definitely like there was a deer at one time uh, on my wife's dad's property. Like they would see this deer every morning, like run like parallel to the school bus, and it was just for one year. And it was, he was a giant, and it's like, <laughs> what were you doing, dude? You know what I mean? Like yeah. what? Yeah. What was going on? Yeah. You ever wish you could just take some of those deer? It's like, all right, look. I don't even want to kill you, but we need to sit down and have a conversation. I, I, yep. you know, I, I will, I will make a deal with you. I'll let you live if you will just tell me what in the heck was happening with that. And and so I even again on my girlfriend's dad's property, like those one year, a hundred and fifty inch ten, the deer. I'd never even had pictures of this deer or anything. He pops up one year, four times that year. My mother in law texts me and is like, "Hey, this deer's chasing does in the yard." Jeez, and I'm like. What? And he ended up getting killed that year on an on an adjacent property, you know, but it's just like where'd he come from? Why that year? Like and he was probably a six year old deer. I mean it was just like that year he was like, I'm going hard. Yeah. Dude, that's crazy. That is wild. Well, man, look, anything that we need to leave folks with on the topic, uh, you know, we, we started off talking about these uh feed trees. Thermals, I think, is is such a huge part of of what's going on right now as well in the deer woods. Anything we need to leave folks with? So, I I'd like to address. You know, I can only speak from my experiences. 
Right. And uh, the part of the woods that I hunt, I don't think that all of this applies everywhere. Uh, I also don't think that I'm the most experienced person that you could talk to. Uh, I think that I can only share what I've come to find to this point and what I think and know and what I theorize on top of that. Right. So I would never try to put myself on a pedestal like, yeah, this is exactly what's happening. You know, I can only speak from my point of view. Right. Well, man, I I think that I I think that does a couple things. You know, number one, I like to talk to somebody who's, you know, worked through a lot of stuff because it tells me this person's always asking why. So they're always working towards the answer, whether they got the answer or not. But two, you've got to have you've got to have some of that confidence that you're thinking with, too, or you're never going to execute. You know what I mean? Like you've, you've got to have some confidence. Like this is what this deer is doing, even if you're not 100 percent on it, because you just gotta you gotta you gotta have confidence to move on it to work you right. know, to work on that basis. So and, um, and so like even going back to thermals, just real quick. Yeah. Uh, there's been times where like I'm I'm looking at a deer and I'm looking at entry, and uh, it's almost overwhelming. You can get overwhelmed. And you're like, I have no way to win here. Like when you start understanding them, you're going to be like, everything's in his advantage. But there's always an answer. You just, maybe you need to leave it alone for a couple of days and then come back and look later. But if you immediately try to swamp your brain on like how to get to them, like it may not come to you at the moment, you're going to get frustrated and discouraged. Right. So sometimes just walk away from it. It's just like working on something. Like you might, it's just not working for you then. Yeah. Man, that brings up one more one more question that I've got that I I feel like might be really important for this conversation. When it comes to trying to catch a deer on an oak tree pattern or, you know, whatever the case may be, early season food source pattern, uh, your window is so small, man. You've got yeah. you've got five, six, seven days to get to catch that buck on that pattern. And two of those days he may come through in daylight. Maybe. Maybe if you're lucky, right? Um how long are you seeing some of these bedding patterns hold on the deer that you're hunting, whether it be on public or private? So, uh, and I'll lead into something else in a second. I think that, that once they shed velvet and into right at the beginning of pre-rut, so like a first, you know, one week period in the pre-rut that they're holding the same bed. Now, this can differ with personality of deer. You could have a deer that just moves constantly, even a big mature deer, but we're talking about generals here. During the rut, they're going to bed with the does that they're breeding. And then I think following that, uh, if you can catch them post-rut, they're going to go back to that food source bedding. Uh, So if you look at it, like they're always prioritizing, like, yeah, they're prioritizing survival, but they're also, they have a travel route to food. So that's what they're going to do until their testosterone pushes them to do otherwise. Right. Right. Uh, And the other thing that I was going to lead into, I've also noticed this over the years, it's super weird, like talking about windows. Uh, like even at pre-rut, I've seen some really big deer would do what I call a three day pattern. And like, I'll tell people like, look, dude, if you're on him, he hits daylight. You have two more days. Right. Yeah. And he's going to disappear. Yes. But it may not be consecutive. It'll be like, he'll do it for two days in a row. He doesn't show the third day. And then the fourth day he's there and he's gone. Right. Right. Dude. I, I have seen that same exact thing pretty much everywhere, everywhere that I've hunted. Right. And, yeah, it it it's like you got those just handful of days, yep. just a couple and of days, and you better move like right now. On well, it. you you have to think from the deer's perspective. Okay, uh, he's moving around pre rut, checking up on does, and as soon as those does in that area are bred, he's moving on. Right? How many? How long does it take him? Yeah, you know, it's just not going to take him that long. I mean, there, I don't know how many does a deer breeds or anything like that, but just. Like some of the deer that I've seen run around, you know, they're probably deep breeding two, three, four does a day. Right. You know, so once you have your group in a 500-acre area bred, like he's going to hop to the next group he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. All right, dude. Well, look, we've been on for about an hour. you got some arrows looks like you're building. Yeah, uh, yeah, plenty. <laughs> where uh, where can folks find you, or if they uh, are in in my shoes and need some arrows built, where can they uh, where can they do that? So my 
my personal page is at Kalen J Pope on Instagram or Kalen Pope on Facebook. And then my business page for Bowwork and Arrows is at Arrows underscore anonymous on Instagram or just Arrows Anonymous on Facebook. I don't run a website because everything's so personalized with you know, adding graphic design and logos into it, it just turns into a DM anyway. Right, right. Yeah. Very good. Well, dude, good luck in the coming weeks, man. I hope you uh, hope you end up tightening the noose around this one buck that you've been after and uh, maybe even get out of town and get a little hunting done. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're working on that. And, and dude, I know you're going to smack a hammer, too, and I look forward to talking to you a little later in the season and catching up. Heck, yeah. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way.